the dark web should be looked at as a community. It's a community of people from all different backgrounds, from security practitioners that work at Fortune 100 companies trying to secure their company, all the way down to the threat actor who's hoping to become the next master hacker, to somebody who's just curious and trying to find out. So if you look at it as a community, you can kind of get a pulse of what the community is thinking and what the community is wanting to do. This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Evan Blicker, Senior Cyber Threat Investigator, Dark Web Lieb at LinkedIn. Evan, thanks for chatting with us today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. So, Evan, before we get started, why don't you do us a favor? Tell us some about yourself, your background, uh, how you got here, transitioned from law enforcement into the role you're in now. Yeah. So I worked in law enforcement for eight years at a sheriff's office in Florida, the Pasco County Sheriff's Office. My goal at that agency was to always make it into our cyber crimes unit, and I was able to do so. Uh, my first role in the unit was as a task force officer, which is uh, essentially a fancy term that allows me to be assigned to a federal law enforcement agency, which was Homeland Security Investigations, giving me the same kind of rights and responsibilities as a special agent to work with them. Uh, it's a very unique position because I also have state and local arrest authority while having federal arrest authority where I did dark web investigations. I was one of the first people at the office that I was assigned to, to conduct dark web investigations. And, and we focused a lot on narcotics related stuff, but there was threat actor groups and a lot of other stuff. After doing that for a little bit, my agency's needs kind of changed where I kind of went into the role as a ICAC investigator, which stands for Internet Crimes Against Children where I did that until I left the agency to start working for LinkedIn. But during that time, I got to do a lot of amazing things. Dark web was still a collateral duty for me, but I also became certified in digital forensics for mobile devices, took training on digital forensics for computers. And from there, I got contacted by a recruiter at LinkedIn. He said, hey, we have amazing opportunity. We're looking to, to start up a dark web investigations vertical. Sounded amazing to me, so I, I decided to take it. I never thought I would leave law enforcement. I really did love the job, but uh, I think my wife enjoys having me home a little bit more now than what I did before. So, sure, I bet, and she's probably uh, happy to know you're more likely to always come home. Uh, <laughs> I live in Florida. I just moved from Orlando to the Tampa area, so I'm uh, whatever. Just I'm in Tampa, south of where? Okay, so I'm I'm just across the bay from you just north of, of St. Pete. And it wasn't lost on me that Live PD started programming again. And uh, so far, they're all in Florida. So yes. that's pretty funny. So it, I'm sure that's uh, some interesting times. So just to touch on that briefly, you had mentioned doing the Crimes Against Children, or CISOM as uh, kind of internet practitioners call it. Uh, huge problem, medium problem, small problem. Uh, how would you frame that? Is it as bad as everyone imagines? It's probably worse than what everybody imagines. In 2020 put every kid behind a computer. And the problem is, is that during quarantine time, parents were having to be behind their own computer to work. And it left kids with limited education on internet safety and little or no control over what they were doing on the computer, which led to an extreme rise in internet crime against children 
related cases. And if you follow NECMEC, which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, they talk, I mean, I want to say from 2019 to now, it's like 196% increase because all of the predators who were in person now move virtual. And unfortunately, there's communities out on the internet where these people interact with each other. They communicate with each other to try to figure out best practices. And I related to a lack of education, lack of education for the kids and for parents as well into the actual dangers of what the internet is. You know, most people go to their same seven, 10 websites every single day and they never have an issue, never have a problem. So they don't think there is an issue. It's the same thing with driving. If you knew the amount of accidents that happened in your area, you would know that when you drive to Target, there's a likelihood that you could get into a crash, even though you haven't had one for 15 years mathematically, there's a probability you could be in a car crash. And it's the same thing with the internet. So 2020 really did have an increase in the amount of cases that were reported through the cyber tip line at, at NECMEC. Man, that's a shame. I'd like to have imagined that the internet would have turned out to be a massive society benefit. It's a shame that people figure out a way to uh, exploit the people using the internet. You know, it's a disappointment of sorts, you know. Yeah. And I still think that the internet is definitely a massive benefit to society, but it's the old adage, locks only keep honest people honest. And if you take that to the internet, if there's a good reason for something to be you know, on the internet, there's somebody who will find a way to use it for malicious purposes. It just depends on their creativity level. And that's kind of the reason why education is so important, because even the most innocent of games or the most innocent of areas for kids to go could potentially lead one day to there being a problem. Yeah, absolutely. I've read of people uh, hanging out on game servers, you know, in the chat, not actually really playing the game just to interact with minors online. It's a shame. So yeah. shifting gears a little bit, uh, now that we got all the terrible stuff out of the way. <laughs> uh, so shifting gears a little bit. So tell me about your typical day at LinkedIn, you know, your role, what are the complexities involved with kind of working dark web in particular? What's all that look like? Well, a lot of my days is building out kind of our hope and vision for what we plan on doing and utilizing some of this information. The information that's on the dark web is extremely valuable. As long as you have somebody who's looking into it, that kind of has a good understanding of what's actually out there and how it can be turned into actionable intelligence. And for all companies, right, there's always the liability worry of being in a place that is monitored by law enforcement and doing or saying anything that could obviously look bad for the company. So luckily there are vendors in the space that do provide, you know, dark web intelligence data. They have their own tools to go out and scrape it and their own people, which is a really nice way to kind of air gap your investigator from, you know, something going wrong because they're on a marketplace that got taken down. But, you know, for the most part, it is still relatively safe. It's not illegal to browse on the dark web. Now, if you purchase, you know, three kilos of cocaine, well, then there's a different story. But to to browse to marketplaces is is not something that's illegal. So a lot of what I'll do is utilizing vendor tools as to where, like, I was in law enforcement, I do a lot more manual searches. Still do some manual stuff, but it's all passive, and just using that information proactively to find leads that we can use to to better our defenses. Okay. And like you're talking about the marketplaces and obviously everybody thinks of, you know, guns, drugs, that type of stuff. What type of stuff else do you find out there? Is it like credentials, uh, things like that, or initial access type of stuff? I mean, what's the other kind of stuff that you see out there? 
Yeah. So actually guns are a very low market space in the dark web. Your biggest market space on different marketplaces or even in the forums is going to be financial related information. So bin numbers, credit card numbers, they go by fulls. So it's the entire information off of a credit card location, you know, the whole nine cryptocurrency stuff to SIM swapping related things. And then from there, you kind of go into your initial access, your stealer logs. I mean, there's places where you can buy RDP access into a purchase computer for $10 in cryptocurrency. And then from there, it trickles into the narcotics world, CSAM world, and then firearms. Firearms is not as prevalent on the dark web. There's been a slight uptick with the Russian-Ukraine war of weapons being sold on the dark web, but it's not anywhere near what it was back when like the original Silk Road was still operating. Okay. Yeah. So what are some kind of misconceptions that people have about the dark web and in particular how it relates to threat intelligence? The biggest misconceptions, probably the largest one of them all would be that it's a threat group or it's a nation state actor, or it's this type of malware and there's guaranteed to be information on the dark web. And that's not true. The last estimates were that Tor specifically, only 57% of it was for illicit means, and not everybody needs to go onto the dark web. The dark web should be looked at as a community. It's a community of people from all different backgrounds, from security practitioners that work at Fortune 100 companies trying to secure their company, all the way down to the threat actor who's hoping to become the next master hacker, to somebody who's just curious and trying to find out. So if you look at it as a community, you can kind of get a pulse of what the community is thinking and what the community is wanting to do. And because of that, you know, not every part of people committing financial crime need to be on the dark web. For instance, a large portion of financial related crimes come out of Africa and you will find very little dark web traffic coming out of Africa because they don't need to access the dark web to learn how to commit what they're doing or further their enterprise. They have their own people, their whoever else is doing this that they've networked in person. So they don't need to access Tor. So you're not going to find a lot of information out of, let's say, a group out of Africa. And it's the same thing if you have an ATP that's a nation state actor, you're probably not going to find a lot of information about them on the dark web because, again, they have their own internal communities that they can go and operate on. Or they're going to be a lot smarter if they are on the dark web. They're not going to be using anything that can lead them back to what they want. So that's probably the biggest misconception is that because this is a cyber threat, it has to be on the dark web and it's not. And then the next biggest misconception is that the dark web is a super dangerous place. And it's really not. It looks like the internet from 1999. The websites aren't very advanced. Obviously, some of them are more advanced than others, but the majority of it there is not necessarily trying to just be extremely malicious. Now you still have that stuff and that needs to be known. So you have to take have proper OPSEC when you're reviewing it. But you know, there are a lot of forms on there that just relate to, you know, people wanting to talk about politics or people wanting to talk about other things with the privacy that Tor provides, as well as without any moderation. So they can say whatever they want. So you may see some vile things posted on there, but a lot of times, because it is a community, there's discussions about that stuff and they just want the privacy that comes along with Tor. And that's the biggest misconception. And not everything that is on the dark web is for bad purposes. I mean, the New York Times has a dark website. The NYPD has their own dot onion as well. Facebook has their own dot onion. And because Tor was created for privacy in mind. But 
again, with anything that is has a good use, there's somebody that can use it for malicious purposes, and that's what happens. And those are probably your biggest misconceptions. And then with you know business leaders as well, it's the fear of the unknown because they don't know what's on the dark web. They haven't been shown what's on it. They're worried that hey, if we start trying to access this information, you know, do we open the company up to liability? Which is a fair question. But in most cases, through vendors and stuff like that, you absolutely don't have to take on that liability. You can do it in a safe and secure manner to be able to provide, in a lot of cases, very valuable information to your defenses. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're describing it right there. It makes me think of IRC from back in the day. Uh, you know, you mentioned people exchanging fools. You know, there used to be channels on like FNET and networks like that, Dellnet called CC Power, uh, where they would be exchanging, you know, fools. And I had kind of hoped that when we moved to chip and pin, I had kind of hoped that, you know, the track, whatever it is, track two, I guess is what they're at now. I had kind of hoped that the track data with CVV would have eventually faded out, but it looks like vendors got an extension of that because I thought they were supposed to sunset that a while back. And I noticed that still hasn't come. I, I still do a lot of swiping and stuff like that. And I think technically that's where, you know, much of that stuff comes from because you don't have any uh, need for the chip if the point of sale systems and whatnot are still collecting for you, you know, loads and loads of these details. But back to IRC, you know, that's how IRC was. Like IRC was, you know, one channel was guys, you know, people talking about video games. One channel was people talking about, you know, certain music types. And then right next to it was people doing Sasam, people talking about how to build explosives. You know, it's very, sounds like a very similar thing. I have to admit, I had never really considered the Onion Router in particular. I'd never really pictured that network as a community, I really think of it just from a purely technical aspect. So I think of it as, you know, multi just massively distributed, anonymous, you know, network. But I guess I do see your point. That is a pretty good description of it, I think. Yeah. And it's one that I think investigators that are looking into dark web intelligence really need to grasp. It's something that I grasped early on. You know, I had an epiphany as I was doing some stuff in law enforcement. And if you follow it as a community, like, you know, there's the people who play video games, the gamer community or car community, you'll see that looking at it that way, when there's shifts in the way things are going to be done or what people are talking about, you start to pick up on those little things. Like I'm a firm believer that, you know, for illicit services and people that do that stuff, there's going to be a strong migration from Tor over to ITP. ITP has gone through upgrades recently. It's become more secure. And also, even in dark web forms, there's a lot of talk. Everybody knows that dark web intelligence is in vogue right now and that there's more investigators than there ever have been investigating that stuff. So now they want to start switching because you know agencies like the FBI are getting better at shutting down these sites. Like in the beginning of the year when we saw Genesis get shut down and, you know, Alpha Bay has been taken down before and all these different things. Now there's going to be, I call it the great migration to I2P. But if you don't look at it as a community, you miss things like that. You miss the way that people are are talking and, and kind of the flow of, of the community. Yeah, that's very insightful. So let's talk skills wise. So obviously dark web is like you said, you know, booming, becoming more, more of an avenue, but you know, regular cyber still exists as well. You know, what skills would you say are most critical for practitioners, you know, figure for the next five years or so, or, you know, to get there, which ones are you say are the most critical for practitioners to think about? So 
relation to like cyber threat intelligence, especially on the dark web, investigation skill is one that I find to be very valuable. If you have something that is a persistent threat or a potential future persistent threat, you know, having the ability to fully research something out to come up with recommendations, to come up with actionable intelligence allows you to put the force field up before it ever becomes a problem. So having that investigative skill and then also having a strong ability to conduct OSINT because there's a lot of information about different cybersecurity stuff that are going on that's available on the clear web. Reddit, for instance, Reddit is a really good place to gather information about, you know, because people that are on the dark web have Reddit and they, there are dark web subreddits where they post very valuable information in the clear web, bright and open for anybody to see. So having an OSINT mindset, having the ability to conduct some type of OSINT to really search these things down is two of the main things that I think are really beneficial, especially when we're talking about threat intelligence. And then cybersecurity as a whole, it's gonna have to be being fluid because a lot of companies have done a lot of layoffs in the last you know year, year and a half or so. And with that, cybersecurity teams have been hit. And so now they're operating under manned. This type of chatter is on the dark web. People know that this is gonna happen. I mean, it's talked about when people who are being laid off that now these teams are potentially gonna be vulnerable. So things are gonna wanna start to uptick. They're gonna try to increase their attack vectors and all of this different stuff to try to get in. So now we need to be more fluid. You may be the world's greatest red team operator, but you might now need to to switch and learn how to set up defenses and protect more so than attacking. So there's a, being fluid, which isn't a skill that's necessarily learned, but it's one that can be built up is probably the top three things I would think that a practitioner would need going forward. Okay. So relative to those skills, what would you say are the biggest challenges that practitioners face? Well, I'd say the largest challenge, especially when we're talking about threat intelligence and the dark web is being able to explain and talk about this type of stuff to somebody who doesn't know, doesn't have time to learn, but knows that they should be concerned or feels that they should be concerned. And there is a lot of very valuable information in the different dark web markets because there's about, I want to say there's about 17 of them now. There's a bunch of different information that is valuable and to cut that away from your team would be doing it a disservice. But getting that investment in and the comfort in is a really, really big thing. So being able to explain that properly. And then also when you conduct a full investigation and you figure out this is a future problem, this is why the future problem is, then being able to present that in a manner which not just makes somebody scared because they don't make right decisions if you just make a business leader terrified of you know the future, but makes them understand the urgency of what you discovered. Hey, this, you know, ATP here is attacking people in this, and we think that they're going to move over to our industry now. And this is all of the reasons why this is all of the stuff that we've seen. So we really need to start building out the fences. This is what they're doing over there. We need to invest on doing this over here to prevent it. And that's going to be a big thing because as the economy, you know, hopefully the economy starts to improve, but as the economy gets tighter and tighter, companies are going to be less and less willing to spend on security because you run into the old adage to where you don't see security doing anything because nothing's going wrong. And then the second something goes wrong, well, now we need to invest in security. Well, it's, it's too late. You should have done it 
when nothing was going wrong. And I that equates back to survivor bias from World War II, where planes were arriving back with all of these bullet holes. And then that's where the military said, hey, we're going to reinforce all the places where they had bullet holes. But those were the planes that made it back. Mm-hmm. You want to reinforce the places where they weren't shot because those planes didn't make it back. Sure. And it's that survivor bias of nothing's going wrong. So we're good to keep the status quo when that's definitely not the case. Yeah, sure. No, I'm a big believer that failure is actually the only true known state, you know, like thinking in engineering terms, right? Because success just may be not yet realized failure. And so when you go to build on success, it's essentially this survivor bias, right? But you have to always consider that what you've done right just may not have gone wrong yet. And that you're kind of blessed when things fail because you know now what not to do, but you have to keep in your mind this thing that did work, it may just not have failed yet. And always, you know, be careful when you're calculating all the things that you're weighing or anchoring off of these things that you think are successes. If they're not a success, then what? And you should always kind of, you know, or at least to me, I always try to have those contingency plans ready. You know, people will say, you know, hey, you're a pessimist, but I would say plan for the worst and you're only ever going to be pleasantly surprised. Uh, So anyway, so five years from now, how do you see things changing? Where are they going, if not changing? And in particular, in relation to dark web. So with dark web, the biggest change I see is that we will move away from Tor and more complete onto ITP, which is the next popular dark web. That's the biggest thing I see coming. There's a lot of people, you know, in different forms related to marketplaces, pushing them to open up on I2P. There's a lot of marketplaces and forms that already have an I2P variant. And if you ask anybody, you know, which one to go to on there, they all say I2P, you know, amongst the community of users, I2P feels the one that's slightly more trusted now because of all the recent takedowns that are happening through Tor. So related to the dark web, that's going to be the biggest thing that we will see. I also foresee that more companies will start to utilize this stuff as more vendors open up in the space. There is a small handful of vendors now that conduct this stuff. And initially they provided a more manual search date. So they went out, scraped all of the data, ingested it into their tool, and then you can manually search for what you want. But now a lot of them are starting to implement automation to make it easier for you to monitor you know, the things that are relevant to you because not every company needs to worry about what's happening in a form, but they may want to search for certain internal domains on the dark web to see if they have been compromised or Maybe they you know, want to list places that sell initial access so they can monitor the initial access sites to see if they flag on one of those. But they don't necessarily need to know about financial fraud because it just doesn't apply to them. Sure. So the vendors that are now starting to open up to automation in doing that stuff allow a cybersecurity team to be able to not have to worry about paying attention to financial fraud and using the automation to only pay attention to what they see. So I definitely see a lot more automation coming into the space because it applies to a lot more cybersecurity teams that don't have a trust and safety thing to worry about. They just have an internal cybersecurity component to worry about. How hard is it for folks to do this kind of like, let's call it, you know, domain searching, you know, how hard is it to look for their watermark documents? How hard is it for them to find their domains? Do people really have to rely on a vendor who's indexing all of this stuff or or could a person just sit down and, and start to try to figure it out and actually get somewhere? Give us some idea about that. So yeah, you can manually search and find stuff. 
it's slow and you run into roadblocks and the roadblocks namely being a lot of these forms require some form of authentication so some forms like exploit.in require a small cryptocurrency donation to the form and then you get into kind of one level and as you start leveling up you need to provide hey you need to provide us you know data from a malware or stealer or whatever and you have to validate yourself to get into more golden areas these authenticated forms are where the best information is because they're locked down you know not any random investigator can get in but there are plenty of places plenty of marketplaces where you just need to build out a username and password and you can log in like nemesis market it doesn't require an email you just create a username a password and then you can see all of the listings in the marketplace but not a lot of initial access is sold in that other places like russian market uh, require a 50 dollar cryptocurrency payment to get in but then you have just about full access to everything so like stealer logs initial access you know rdps that are being sold it just depends on what you're initially looking for and how far you're you're able to go staying inside of of all all the laws and guidelines vendor tools just allow you to either automate the process or roadmap the process enough it just adds in some speed now the issue with vendors is that when it comes to intelligence gathering everybody has their own methodology for doing it some people might say hey we should really focus on x while somebody else says we really should focus on y so my opinion always is that if you are having a dark web intelligence vendor you have more than one and you try to find two companies that have difference in intelligence gathering methodology so that way you hope that they essentially complete a venn diagram right the center of it is the stuff that they both have that's the exact same and then the outskirts of it is all stuff that neither one platform has over the other and it hopes that gives you just an extremely large picture of what's out there and you know some vendors have a, a lot of really really good information and you might be able to operate just off of one but i feel in order to truly get a nice large picture of what's going on there using just vendor tools you need to have more than one vendor okay so one of the things we like to do on our podcast is uh if you remember back in the day on game shows they would uh everyone would get the, the play at home edition of the game and for us it comes in advice actionable advice so what are three pieces of actionable advice that you have for practitioners out there who might be trying to either begin dark web investigations or apply dark web information towards their intelligence practice or any and all of the space in between three pieces of advice so the first piece of advice that I would have for getting into the dark web, if you have no experience in the dark web, is to learn about it. Learn about the technical aspects of it. The torproject.org has a lot of really good information that talk about specifically how Tor works and the breakdown of it. Start understanding the technical side of it before you start getting into the actual threat side of it, because that helps you understand the community. And as you start to learn that stuff, it will take you to places that have written articles about the dark web that then touch into some of the nefarious things that happen on there, but then also communities that talk about it. For instance, Reddit communities, where you can learn a lot of valuable information. And that would be the first step that I would have. The next actionable information is, is utilize Reddit in some of those dark web communities to read through what people are posting about and it is a good way to get an insight as to what is actually going on in the dark web it's not a complete it gives you enough to kind of get an understanding 
And then lastly, work on how to secure yourself for operational security. So as you start learning and understanding more about the dark web and some of the things, you know, start weighing in to what is the best practice for you. Is it better for you to have a burner machine that has a VM uh, running locally? Is running a cloud-based VM better for you? Is Linux or, or Windows better for you? Using a VPN service that allows Tor over VPN. There's many different kind of thoughts on the best way to remain secure. The biggest thing you should always do when operating uh, the dark web to remain secure is to turn your JavaScript off um, in your browser. But do that. Learn the basics of the technical ways that it works. Then start thinking about it as a community and exploring that community in the clear web where you're able to. And then from there, move into securing yourself to be able to actually either go into it manually or at that point in time, you might even be ready to reach out to a vendor. And what's nice is that some vendors take the operational security issue away for you. Some vendors will provide a inside of their UI access to a cloud-based virtual machine that you operate through your browser. So nothing ever comes back to your computer. Nothing ever comes back to your network. It's on their end and they take that away from you. So you don't even have to worry about the operational security side of it. It's all done for you. So presumably people would want to start somewhere right before they subscribe to a service like that, because that sounds super affordable. Um, <laughs> um, core browser, Tails, where would you uh, propose people get started? No. So I actually don't like using Tails as an investigator because of it being amnesic. I prefer Hunix or I like to run uh, Ubuntu and then I put all of my security stuff down there, lock down a bunch of ports. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, yeah, the Tor browser. And that's as easy as it is. From there to access it, you would look at like link service sites that provide links to certain dark web things. But it that's as, as easy as it is. My preference is to use Hunix or Ubuntu, but lock down much more than what it is and to just download the Tor browser and you're good to go. As an investigator, I don't like Tails because if I gather a piece of evidence and then you know ADD kicks in and I forget to take that one little piece of evidence off of Tails and shut everything down, well, then I lose it. And a lot of times if I was conducting an investigation in law enforcement, I would have a clean image, conduct my investigation with that clean image, and then I would take that image and that image would now be evidence itself to show exactly what I did and what steps I took. So for me, Tails wasn't it, but Tails is a secure OS that people can use and and go from there. Excellent. Well, Evan, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, that's unfortunately all the time that we have. Very interesting stuff. I think a lot of people for sure probably didn't consider the fact that the dark web was a community. So I, I know I had never really considered it that way. So that was uh, not new to me, obviously, but because uh, uh, I've been tracking dark web stuff for a while, but I had never really taken that perspective. So thanks so much for sharing that. If our listeners want to follow your work, uh, see what you're up to, things like that. Do you have a social media presence? Are you open to questions? Things like that? Yeah, absolutely. They can find my LinkedIn page, Evan Blicker. I should pop up pretty quickly. My handsome mug is in the profile photo, but yeah, they can absolutely go to my LinkedIn profile. And if, if you want me to provide you that link to put in the show notes, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, no, please do. So thanks so much again for joining us. It was very insightful and we look forward to keeping in touch. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com 
or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.